0: My wife is my uh, toughest critic as well. (laughs) Um, She usually tells me not to tell jokes because I'm no good at it. So can I tell you a joke? (laughs) (laughs) Two Christians are driving to a Trump rally when they're caught in a terrible car accident and they're suddenly standing before some uh, enormous shining gates And Jesus is looking at them expectantly. And he says, well done, my good and faithful servants. Enter into your rest. And they're stunned and they're overwhelmed. And they wander in with their mouths agape at just the wonder of heaven. But they come back just a few minutes uh, later with sheepish looks on their face. And they say, "Um, hey, Jesus, uh, we just want to ask you one question that's been bugging us. Now, we can't, uh, how on earth did Joe Biden manage to steal that election? We can't figure out how he did it. And Jesus shakes his head and says, it wasn't stolen. He simply got more votes than the other guy. And at this, there's an awkward pause for a moment, and the two arrivals look at each other, and one of them says, well, this goes higher than we thought. maybe I should leave the jokes to (laughs) Lorne. But when you hear the passage from Nehemiah's journal that we had read out today, you can't help but get the sense of intrigue and conspiracy in that passage. As the wall is being completed, uh, its opponents get more and more desperate to stop it. We see personal attacks on Nehemiah, schemes which reach some high places and include some of the priests, prophets, and nobles in Jerusalem. But we see that there is a higher power at work. And in this passage, we have that amazing affirmation that the wall was finished and the nations around Judah lost their confidence, lost faith, face, because they saw that God had enabled it. Raymond Brown summarises the teaching of this chapter on these personal attacks on Nehemiah by saying it shows us the enemy's subtlety and the Lord's sufficiency. Have I spelled it wrong? No? Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing I should probably not do, right things in public. <laughs> and as a church, we have a vision to stop being in decline and to become and be a flourishing Christian community. And as a community, that we have a mission to connect people to God and to one another. And in 2023, we are refocusing as a church on seeing that vision and mission become more and more a reality. As we pray, keep praying. As we plan, keep planning. And as we work together, keep working, to see it become that reality. And as part of that process, we are turning to the scriptures and in particular the character of Nehemiah for counsel and wisdom to help us on that journey. Nehemiah had inspired and organized the people to rebuild the wall. And as they worked, Nehemiah had had to deal with external and internal threats to the completion of this task. And now, as the walls near completion, we see the outside opposition turns to attack Nehemiah personally. The the passage we're looking at today is split into four sections, four different types of uh, attack on Nehemiah. And they also point out how Nehemiah responds. And how Nehemiah responds is important for us on our journey so we're going to work through this passage, we're going to look at those four sections and see how each one of them speaks to us today. We don't often talk about spiritual attacks and spiritual warfare, but this is, you know, this is getting to, to the, the crux of what that is about. And verse 1 acts as an introduction to the whole passage. It outlines the key players in the unfolding drama, Nehemiah, of course, and his three key opponents to the rebuild. You might call them the unholy trinity of Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Remember when we talked about them? The whole of of Jerusalem was surrounded by those who were opposed to the rebuild. But now there's no more gaps in the wall, and they're getting ready to hang the gates. The project was going to be stopped, it had to be stopped right now before it was completed. And his enemies are told that Nehemiah had rebuilt the wall. Of course, we know this is not true. We know from Nehemiah's official report that we looked at last week in Nehemiah chapter 3 that um, it was a community effort, a team effort. They all worked together. But it shows the thinking and the change of emphasis for nehemiah's enemies the focus is now on him nehemiah has a target on his back if they get rid of nehemiah they can demoralize the people and stop the project uh, even at this late date and you know leaders are often the focal point for attacks and uh, uh, organizations and projects and specifically in churches it's a spiritual reality. Jesus told his disciples that if they treated him that way, that we, why should we expect anything different? You know, uh, uh, the, the, the servant is no greater than the master. Um, and uh, it's a spiritual reality. Uh, you know, as we, as we try and do things differently... As uh, we try to make change, as we try and, and, and bring in a new vision, we will always bump up against people whose personal agendas are, are, are different, and also spiritual forces as well. Now, this idea of attacking the leader has been brought up, uh, brought home to us in New Zealand recently with the amount of vitriol and abuse and threat uh, that was thrown at Jacinda Ardern, as our Prime Minister. Now, whether you supported her policies or not, she took the flack as the leader. She took the flack for her party. She took the flack for the decisions they made. And Nehemiah shows us how to handle such attacks in a God-honouring way. The first attack comes from Sanballat and Geshem, who send a message to Nehemiah to come and meet with them. What seems like a very rational and reasonable thing to do i mean they are equally persian officials as well their fellow leaders so why not talk through the differences the plains of ono are sort of halfway between jerusalem and samaria so it'd be easy to be seen as hey let's meet halfway you know but nehemiah sees through it and sees it as a scheme to harm him firstly it's a day's journey uh, down to Ono, and you can imagine the talks going on and on and on and a journey back. So it would take him away from the work and it would delay it, delay it by at least a good work, a good week. And then you don't know there might be sort of more conferences that they want to sort of have, you know. Uh, and it could purely be a delaying tactic. But more threateningly, Ono was away from where Nehemiah had protection. It was a dangerous place. It was on the border, so it would have been easy to kill, and then replace Nehemiah. Remember, Sanballat had been the governor over Judah as well as over Samaria. Um, so Nehemiah sends back a message, and he does it the right way by sending, you know, that you would with one official talking to another, by using an aide, and says. I am carrying out a great project and I cannot go down. Don't make me stop work just to come and talk to you. One of the ways that the enemy uses to stop us focusing on seeing seeing our God-given vision becoming a reality and doing our kingdom of God work is distraction. These distractions can very easily be seen as good things but can be dangerous. They can take us away or even stop us from achieving what God is calling us to do. My mailbox on my computer fills up with emails of very good and wonderful things that people are inviting me to come and be involved in, and that I could invest my time in. And some of them, you know, I'm really interested in. But I believe that if I answered them all and and did what they were asking me to do, it would pull me away from what God is calling me to do. Paul Borthwick, in his book on time management, puts it like this He says, If the devil can't make you evil, he'll make you busy. You know, so many distractions that you can't keep focused. And for us, that's all a a great truth. Um, I mean, one of the examples is that when it comes to developing and growing our relationship with God, you know, it's easy to get distracted. You might sit down to have your quiet time to read the Bible and to pray and then there's this flood of all these things you need to do comes into your mind, right? And you just can't settle yourself and be still. And uh, it would be easy for those things to drain away the energy for the good work of growing spiritually. I guess that's why they call those things spiritual disciplines. Nehemiah's response here was to simply remain focused on the main thing keep the main thing the main thing as one of my youth group leaders in Rotorua used to say again and again and again which was actually really helpful in the end we also need to be aware that like Jesus found some distractions some interruptions can be God-appointed moments and ministry opportunities But for leadership as a church and for us individually in our lives, it's important to know what God has called us to do, what is important for us to do, and what is simply distraction. And to be willing to say, like Nehemiah does, no, we're about a great work and I'm not coming off this wall. The second attack is more insidious. Sanballat sends an open letter via a courier to Nehemiah. Now, it may have been the same as the previous letters. And in our day and time, it would be like leaking the contents of an email to the media or (coughs) actually posting it on a public forum. Everybody gets to read it. And the letter is full of slander and insinuendo, you know, of rumours. It's designed to make the people fearful and also to make them question Nehemiah's motives. Samballot, supported by Geshen, say that they've heard Judah is planning a revolt and Nehemiah is going to appoint himself king. In fact, that he's paid some of the prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim him as king. And uh, they want Nehemiah to come with to, and meet with them and to talk about this. Uh, otherwise, and uh, in the Good News Bible it doesn't emphasise it enough, Otherwise, they will let Artaxerxes know. That's the sting in the tail. Now, the devil is called the father of lies. And here we get a glimpse of that sort of strategy. Sowing seeds of doubt through untruth and wanting to make people afraid and to stop trusting God. And so to stop following and working for his preferred future for them. It also shows us that the enemy isn't really that uh, inventive either. And, uh, you know, as Sanballat had used this rumour of revolt before, or should I say in Ezra 4, to stop the rebuilding. He'd let that rumour be heard by Artaxerxes. And, you know, often a leader's or Christian's integrity will be challenged and questioned as a way to make them stop doing what God is wanting them to do. Oh, you're just empire building. It's all about you and what you can get out of it. And you know the Psalms are full of such things and such pain of such things in David's life. Rumours, hurtful and damaging character assassinations. Well, Nehemiah does not enter into a debate with Sanballat uh, desperately trying to defend himself. Nor is he cowered into doing what Sanballat wants, or goaded into a slinging match with his opponents. Rather, he responds directly by saying it's not true. You know, he is confident in his own integrity. And, expo- and you've got to remember that, you see, Nehemiah, when there was the talk about, you know, uh, the financial things that were going on amongst the people that were causing harm, Nehemiah repented of the way his family was involved in that. So we've got a man that, you know, will, will listen to criticism and be prepared to change. But here he's saying, no way, this is not true, you know, And he exposes what Samballot is really trying to do. You're trying to make the people too afraid to complete the work. Fearful of Persian forces coming over the horizon just to make sure that there isn't a rebellion. Uh, You know, um, or also that they were fearful of Nehemiah becoming king or wanting to be king. You know how you respond to lies? You respond by speaking truth, exposing it to the light. By proclaiming the gospel. The fact that Sanballat does not report this to Artaxerxes actually shows him that he's aware of Nehemiah's integrity and reputation with the king. Secondly, Nehemiah turns to prayer. One commentator calls it a Twitter prayer. A quick-fire, short prayer. Now strengthen my hands. Now, as it says in the um, Good News Bible, now strengthen me, God. He asks God to enable him to continue the work and to keep doing what is right. In Acts 4, when the uh, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious officials, tell the disciples to stop talking about Jesus and the fact that he's risen from the dead, instead of being afraid, they get together and they pray for the courage to keep on doing what God has called them to do, a sort of strengthen-my-hand prayer prayer. And the place where they met shook as God turned up. When we are faced with spiritual and personal opposition, we need to turn to the Lord in prayer, trusting God to be with us. And it's important that we remember here that Nehemiah was a man of prayer. And this short help prayer is is not out out of the ordinary. But, you know, it comes from what he knows of God and his constant and consistent prayer life. Right from the beginning of the book, we've seen that in Nehemiah. Now the third attack starts in verse 10, and this is a bit harder to sort out. Nehemiah goes to the house of, and I find this hard to say as well, Shemaiah, who we find out in verse 12, uh, where Nehemiah says Shemaiah was prophesying against him, is recognised as a prophet. And probably as he counsels Nehemiah to meet him in the temple, that he is a priest as well. And it tells us that Shememiah was shut in his house. Now this was probably meant to be some sort of prophetic symbolic action. You know, like um, Hosea marrying uh, a prostitute. uh, And you see in uh, Ezekiel and and, uh, Jeremiah that they they do strange things which um, are are supposed to show people that this is what God's doing. And uh, this was obvious to show Nehemiah and the people that they should be scared They should stop work and that they should hide. And Shemaiah tells Nehemiah to to meet him in the temple, to go in and to close the door as uh, they're coming any time to kill him. And again, Nehemiah responds by realising that this was not from God, that this was a false prophecy. You see, Nehemiah has a gift of discernment and is able to work out what is and isn't from God god and the question sort of of how nehemiah knew this comes to the fore and you know the the wider question of well how do you discern false prophecy well there are two things here firstly nehemiah says why should someone like me act in this way you see, it goes against the grain, and all that had happened for Nehemiah to run away and hide and give in to fear instead of trusting God's favour and mercy, which he had been shown right from the start. Why change now? It just didn't seem right. But, secondly, and, and more importantly, uh, Nehemiah knew the word of God, he knew that it went against the Torah. And saying, who am I, is, is a way of saying, I'm a lay person. And in the Torah it says that only priests, only those set aside for that particular work, can go into the temple. In fact, anybody who isn't and goes into the temple and closes the door and is in there is sinning. They're guilty of death. You know, they're, they're, you know that's the penalty for doing that. Uh, At least, you know, if Nehemiah had done this, he would have lost all credibility with the people. I mean, here he was, here we are working to restore Jerusalem as a holy place, and Nehemiah comes along and he defiles the temple. Uh, Although, and it could be like, well, David and his soldiers went into the tabernacle and ate the bread at the altar when they were being chased. Uh, So maybe here's Nehemiah, if he does that, he's kind of giving credence to the fact that he wants to be king. And I say the key to discerning false prophets and teachers, the key to discerning what or isn't from God, is to know the Scriptures. As what God says never contradicts what is in the Scriptures, which is God's revealed will. As uh, Pete Gregg in his book, How to Hear God, which is going to be in the library from uh, Monday, it's worth reading gives some helpful advice on how to assess and weigh prophecy or words that people give us from God. And he says you just simply apply the ABC. Is it affirming? Is it building up? Is it consistent with the Bible? That's the key one. And see from a Christian perspective, is it Christ-like? The ultimate answers to false prophets, however, was that what God said and envisaged actually came true. We're told that the war was completed in 52 days. An amazing job done in an amazing time. You know, there were no overruns. There were no... Uh, Uh, cost overruns. And instead of the people being afraid as the prophet and the enemies wanted, it was the surrounding nations who lost their confidence because when the work was completed in time, it was obvious that God was with his people. Despite all the shenanigans, God's purposes were achieved. We need to be reminded and have confidence that God is the one who is able to bring to fruition the visions he imparts to his people. And the fourth section deals with the ongoing attacks that Nehemiah faced. Uh, If you were to talk about it in today's terms, you might use words like nepotism or cronyism, uh, a letter-writing campaign, uh, trying to rake up muck on someone. Tobiah is said to have many connections with the important families in Jerusalem and people who are oath-bound to him. They're tied to him by family and business. Who he writes to, to try and undermine Nehemiah. And who passes on intelligence against Nehemiah to him. And Tobiah's aim in giving good reports for himself uh, is so that he will be able to maintain and extend his power base. And intimidate Nehemiah by saying, see the influence I have. You know, maybe we see that in today's um, you know, uh, uh, social media world where influences can, can change the way things uh, uh, happen. Uh, and, you know, we actually call that being a gatekeeper or a power broker in our day. People who use their influence for their own personal gain and to gain and keep control. When there's change or a vision that threatens the status quo and their place in it, you know that you will face people who have so much invested in the way things are and and who are gatekeepers who just simply want to let you know that they really are in charge. And we see that Nehemiah deals with them in the first paragraph in chapter 4. Instead of pandering to the gatekeepers, he appoints people like his brother Hanani, as their commander, you know, it might seem like he's giving in to nepotism or possibly wants to surround himself with his own power base, with yes men and sycophants. But, you know, we need to look at the quality of the qualities that Nehemiah sees in his brother and the, uh, the other Hananiah uh, when he appoints them. They are people of integrity. They fear God more than man. You know? That's great. They're devoted to God in their lives and that's consistent and shows in their actions. And Nehemiah also empowers the people to be involved in the process, to guard the gates and the walls, divesting power and influence from those gatekeepers. It's a good example for us as well to look at people's devotion to God rather than their connectedness and influence and devolve power structures so it isn't in the hands of a few but shared by many. You know, we could have spent four weeks unpacking this passage and looking at examples of the enemy's tactics to oppose God's work and how to respond, but... uh, Really, we've just managed to scratch the surface, but it's too good to see this example of keeping on doing a God-given task despite personal attacks, physical, psychological, and spiritual. To see someone trusting and turning to God in those times and being committed to the vision they believe God has given them. It's encouraging for us. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And we often equate meek with weak. However, someone who is meek is someone who is committed with all their strength and energy to the common good, a common goal, to see God's preferred future become a reality and will not be put off or pulled away by any distraction, accusation, slight or ploy. Nehemiah gives us a good example of that. And of course, Jesus is the ultimate example, as it says in Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. The other thing is people are often fearful when we talk about spiritual warfare and spiritual attacks. And fear is a word that's repeated quite often in this chapter. But in the end, the type of fear that comes through and victorious is the fear of the Lord. The awe that they have, that God is with them. The awe that That God had allowed them to build the wall. They see that God's power and that God is with his people. And you know in the end it's those people who fear the Lord who are the ones who persevere and prosper. We started off with a a joke (laughs) about uh, the fact that, you know, the conspiracy went higher than we thought. But the reality is that it's rather the opposite. Those conspiracies, that opposition, the enemy will never go high enough because God is with his people. God is for his people. Jesus Christ has won the victory. The enemy has been defeated. The enemy may be subtle, but the Lord is sufficient. So let's build together, let's work together. For what God has called us to, for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Amen.